of us, we are going to be continuing our way in our series in the Gospel of John. And in particular, this morning, we'll be picking up in chapter 3 and, and verse 22. Uh, most recently, we've seen Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. Um, and now, in our passage, Jesus and his disciples, they've gone off into the Judean countryside, and it's there that we're going to find them this morning. Now, Similar to the way in which we've seen the last two weeks where, we've had, where we had Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus followed by John's commentary, we're going to have something similar this morning as we have um, John the Baptist's interaction with his disciples, and then again we're going to have uh, the Apostle John's commentary on the events. So with that in mind, let's, let's read our text this morning. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Aeon near Salim because the water was plentiful and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put into prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear bear me witness that I have said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we need you this morning. We need you so that we might understand your word, so that your word might be applied to our hearts. Holy Spirit, would you work in us, applying these words, that we might know our Savior better, that some might even come to know our Savior for the very first time, oh Would you speak to the hearts of your people this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was contemplating this text this week, I found myself rereading a portion of Mere Christianity uh, by C.S. Lewis. He has a, a a chapter that's entitled, The Great Sin. And this is what he says. He says, there is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people ever imagine that they are guilty of. Everybody hates it, nobody likes it, but nobody thinks they're guilty of it. This vice he's talking about, he says, is pride or self-conceit. In fact, if, if anyone wants to know how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me? Or they refuse me, uh, to, or they refuse to take notice of me, or to patronize me, or, or they show off. The point is that each person's pride, he says, is in competition with everyone else's pride. We're in competition with one another. It is because I want to be the life of the party that 
that you get upset when somebody else is. Uh, two of the same will, will, will never agree. Now, what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially, he says, competitive. Okay? Pride gets no pleasure out of having something. Sometimes that's the way we think of it. Like It's when we have something, but only out of having more of it than the next man. It's only when we have more of it than the other person. It's, it's not just that we have it, but, but we want to have more and we want to be better off than, than everybody else. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. Do you understand that? Do you see pride at work in, in your own life, self-conceit, where, where you have to be lifted up and you have to be high, you have to be above everyone else? I, I think in our passage this morning, we have a bit of pride maybe at work in John the Baptist's disciples. So uh, let's just set the stage here for a moment. Uh, Jesus has gone out in the countryside and, and his disciples are baptizing. Now, the, the language here doesn't make it clear, but we, we learn in chapter four makes it clear that, that Jesus isn't the one actually doing the baptism. It's his disciples that are. But you have Jesus doing his ministry over there. His, his disciples are baptizing and John the Baptist's disciples, they're over here and, and, and they're baptizing. And it's in this context that John the Baptist's disciples, they get into a discussion. Okay, verse 25, they get into this discussion with a Jew over purification. Purification, we'll remember from those jars at the wedding of Cana, right, where, where water is poured on the hands to purify somebody so they can be made, in a sense, right and worthy so that they can receive blessing. And so that's kind of what baptism is, right? It's this ritual of, of purification, very fitting with John the Baptist's call to repent and believe, Right? And so people were coming out doing this ritual cleansing, and it's at this point that John Baptist's disciples, they get in this discussion over purification with this Jew. We, we don't know what the content of it was. was there, were they debating over whether or not John the Baptist's baptism was valid or not? And maybe this Jew was even kind of pointing a little bit and saying, you, you see how the line over there is getting longer? You, you understand how, how Jesus' ministry, it seems to be growing, and yours seems to be waning as... That may be a little bit of what's going on here. Look at what, what John the Baptist's disciples come running to him and what they say. Listen to the words. Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Can you hear a bit of it in the tone? He who is with you. They, they don't even say Jesus' name. They don't even call out who he is. He, he who is with you. They can't even be... They can't even say his name, and what do they also say? All are going out to him. Now, when I do marriage counseling, every time, always, every time, I have to warn the couple that we don't use absolute language. We don't say, you always, or you never, but she never, he always. You don't use that kind of language because absolute language in a relationship is really never true. Now, it is true when you're speaking about doing counseling because it is always true that you have to say that to a couple. But you, you kind of see something similar happening here. John the Baptist, they're using this always. Like, everybody's going to him. All are going to him. But we already read back in, in verse 23, no, they had people going out to John the Baptist. They, they have people lined up to be baptized. What's happening here? Maybe there's some pride swelling up in John the Baptist's disciples. Some jealousy showing up. You know, John the Baptist's ministry used to be great and grand. It used to be the, 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 
the new thing on the street. And suddenly now Jesus comes in and he's attracting the crowds. The line over there with Jesus is getting much longer. John the Baptist's line is getting shorter. And of course, John the Baptist's disciples, the problem really is, as we're going to see, that they haven't been listening to John the Baptist very well. They're his disciples. They're loyal to him, but to a fault, because they haven't even been listening to what he's been saying. I was reminded of um, a 19, or in the 1800s, a Scottish pastor, uh, Robert Murray McShaney. Some of you may have heard of him. Some of you may have used his Bible reading plan at one point or another, very ambitious reading plan. But he didn't make it very long as a pastor. He died before his 30th birthday. But at his 23rd birthday, he became the, the, the pastor of a church in Scotland, Dundee, Scotland. And one of the things, it was a pretty decent-sized church, but right off the bat, he began to get that church together praying for revival. Every Thursday night, he had a have prayer meeting to pray for that. The revival would break out in their area through their church. And this took place for a couple of years. And the revival didn't come, but they kept praying. Then uh, McShaney was to go off uh, on a a little mission trip of about six months um, to the Holy Land. And another pastor was, he had called another pastor to be put in his place to do the preaching while he was gone, a guy by the name of William Burns. And this is what McShaney wrote about what was going to happen. He said this, he says, I sometimes think that a great blessing may come. This is before anything happens. A great blessing may come to my people in my absence. Often God does not bless us when we are in the midst of our labors, lest we shall say, my hand and my eloquence have done it. In fact, he later confessed to a friend, he who removes us into silence and then pours down blessing, down the blessing, so that there is no room to receive it, so that all that see it cry out, it is the Lord. May it really be so with my dear people, praying for revival even after he leaves. And you know what happens? A couple of months after he's gone, he's off on on the mission field doing his thing. And what does he get word of? But revival is broken out with this pastor younger than him. And he immediately begins to dart off a letter. I could write my letter. I won't tell you what mine would say. This is what his letter said. You remember it was the prayer of my heart. This is what he writes to Burns. You remember, it was the prayer of my heart when we parted, that you might be a thousandfold more blessed to the ministry than ever my ministry had been. How it will gladden my heart if you can really tell me it's so. How it will gladden my heart if you can really tell me that these reports I've gotten, that they're really true. And just imagine my response, maybe your response too. Why not me? You know, isn't that the way, like, well, why not me? Why him? We prayed for it. Why not me? And we tend to whine because we want to be the center of every narrative, don't we? We want to be the center of every story. But McShaney was happy. He was filled with joy to hear this news. Oh, can you tell me it's really been so? I think we see something similar with John the Baptist here in our, our passage. What is, what is John's response? He says this to his disciples, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. First point he wants to make sure his disciples understand is 
They, they understand the origin of his ministry, where it's all come from, the successes have come from, that it's all come from above. It's all come down from God. You see, John the Baptist, he knew where the success of his early ministry came from. And he knew where the diminishing success of his ministry was coming from too. And he was content in it. Our temptation, I think, is to be a bit more like John the Baptist's disciples. We want to look to ourselves as the origin of our successes, don't we? We want to think we are somehow the center of it. And, and John the Baptist, he's trying to reorient his disciples. Reorient his disciples to understand from whence all things come and all blessings come. His words, in some way, they're, they're similar to Job's, aren't they? The Lord gave... The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You and I, we need to learn to do that, don't we? To reorient ourselves to the true source of all things. And if we know the true source, if we really know from whence all blessings come, and if we trust that source, what will happen? Pride will begin to fall away. Jealousy will will begin to fall away and it will begin to turn into what? To gratitude. Because we know the source and we trust the source. But of course, what's our problem? So often we don't trust the source, do we? We trust the source as long as things are going the way that we want them to go. But do we really trust the source? John the Baptist trying to teach, can you trust the source? Even if, thing, even if our line's getting shorter and, and Jesus' line is getting longer. And he goes on and he tells them, basically, do, do you not yet, this, remember he's talking to his disciples, he's been teaching, he's been with them for a long time. Do you not yet understand what my job is here? In fact, as we're about to read, in fact, I know you know what my job is because I've heard you say what my job is. Verse 28, you yourselves bear witness with me. Okay, what's he saying? You you yourselves, you've said this. You know this is the truth. That I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. When is it going to sink in? My ministry, John the Baptist, it's not about me. My ministry, it's about him. Help him understand, he gives them an illustration, doesn't he? Verse 29. The one who has the bride, he says, is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. What is, what is, what is he doing here? He's comparing himself to this friend of the bridegroom. Now, this is sort of technical language in the day, okay? We could think of it as the best man plus. You know, we, we have Disney plus and Apple TV plus. Everything's plus these days. This is best man plus, okay? We know best men today, you know, what do they do? They stand up there. Maybe they plan a bachelor party, but they don't really do much else. Maybe they give a speech. This best man plus in this day, this, this friend of the bridegroom, they're responsible for a large part of organizing the wedding. Can you imagine that, women? Okay? 
<laughs> organizing the women, uh, the wedding. They're, they're a witness to the wedding. They contributed financially probably to the wedding. And, okay? They were an agent of the bridegroom every step of the way, making sure that everything goes perfect. Okay? They were at work to do what? To prepare the bride for the wedding day, making sure everything is perfect. What John the Baptist is saying to his disciples is, you've got this completely messed up. What bride on her wedding day is going to be concerned that the best man isn't getting enough attention? Never. Never. John the Baptist, he knows his role. His role is to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. He knows the the Old Testament language sometimes used of Israel calling her the bride. And that which we know in, in the New Testament, of course, as the church is the bride of Christ. And John the Baptist knows his role. His role to prepare the bride. To prepare the church for the Savior. And all of this drives John to his main point. What does he say? Verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you understand what that means? He must increase, I must decrease. It's, it's like the, the silver medalist. You know, pick your event. It doesn't really matter. The silver medalist, like getting up there on the podium, but just being like in awe of the person on the, that got the gold medal. Celeb- not just in awe, like, oh, they're better, but like celebrating, glad, happy, rejoicing for the gold medalist. You and I would probably sulk because we didn't quite make it all the way there. Maybe we sulk when we don't get that promotion and somebody else does. Regardless of their abilities, or better, we can't celebrate their successes. We Sulk for ourselves, or you don't get that role in the play, you don't make that grade in that class, or whatever it is, you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank. But for John the Baptist, what does he do? He delights in Jesus. He delights in in Jesus. He's able to say of Jesus that, that in him increasing, and in he, John the Baptist decreasing. That in Jesus' line growing longer, in John the Baptist's line shrinking, he's able to say as he does in verse 29, what is this doing? It's making his joy, his joy complete. This joy of mine, John the Baptist says, is now complete. Why? Because John the Baptist prizes Jesus above all. McShaney, um, later in a conversation or whatever with Burns, he told him this. He said, I charge you, be clothed with humility, or you will be a wandering star for which is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Let Christ increase. Let man decrease. This is my constant prayer for myself. And for you, I think there you can hear a tinge of maybe McShaney even like, hey, I struggle with this too. 
This must be not all about our own ministries, he's saying. This must ultimately be about Christ. He must increase. We must decrease. How's John the Baptist able to say this? He's able to say this because he knows who Jesus is. The one who in chapter 1, what did he say of Jesus? He said that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, whatever the purification argument was about at the beginning of our passage, and this baptism that, that they were out there, John's baptism that he was out there doing, this, this ritual cleansing, all of that purification stuff, it pointed to something much greater, right? It pointed to, to, to the one that, that he, John the Baptist, needed. The one that the whole world needed. The only one who could truly purify anybody. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's because of that that John the Baptist is able to say, he must increase, but I must decrease. Are you able to say that? We know we're supposed to say that, right? We, we know we're supposed to say that in Christ, He, he is supposed to be preeminent of all, all the things, but we, we struggle to actually live that way, don't we? We struggle to prize Him above all. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it. He puts it in very different language, but he says this, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. If you will, to be content whether the lines are long or the lines are short. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of placing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How is this? How is he able to do this? He says this, I can do all things through him, through Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. He must increase. We must decrease. We must understand and see the true source and trust the true source, Jesus Christ himself. Now the Apostle John then continues on, and this is where the Apostle John kind of picks up his pen in verse 31. And he begins to tell us some of his thoughts, if you will, on on why Jesus must increase and we decrease. I was, there's a show I watched not too long ago, maybe some of you have seen it, Poker Face. It's about this um, lady that she like drops into all these different towns and there's been a murder. Um, and she drops into these towns with kind of a special ability. She can, she can tell when somebody's lying. Okay? Which you can imagine if you're trying to solve a crime, that would be very, very helpful to know for sure if somebody was lying. And And so she goes into these towns, and with her kind of special ability, knowledge, she's able to help solve solve these crimes. And it kind of reminded me of what what John goes on to tell us here, is that what was needed is someone to come in from the outside and to show the way. But now we're talking about a million-fold over that illustration, but this is what the Apostle John says. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth 
and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He, he gives kind of a bit of a contrast here, right? A contrast between John the Baptist and Jesus. And he's not saying this to denigrate John the Baptist's work. John the Baptist's work is important, right? In many ways, their, their work, at least at this point in the gospel, it looks similar. They're doing similar things, saying similar things. But John the Baptist, in a sense, he could only come to warn He could only come to prepare the way for the bride, or for the bridegroom, sorry. But Jesus, he's able to come as the one who what? Who comes from heaven. Who comes from heaven above, and he comes with real and true power. Why must Jesus increase? Why must we decrease? Because he is the one who's come from above. And not just that, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. Now, previously, John the Baptist has already been called a witness. He is a, a witness, right? But what are we learning here? That there is a, a greater witness, right? John the Baptist, he was able to relay words from heaven, if you will. But Jesus comes as the one who is from heaven and and brings those words down. The one who John previously told us that in him was the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? What does he do? He comes, Jesus Christ comes, and he brings good news from above down into this world. And in a sense, he doesn't just bring good news, right? He is the good news. The good news of the Messiah come right there before them in their eyes. And yet many people, they hear the testimony, yet no one, he says, receives his testimony. Many hear about Jesus, but they don't hear that you this morning? Have you been hearing this? You hear this week in, week out? You know the gospel. You could repeat the gospel for me now. You know what Jesus came. You know what he accomplished. You know what, what he did. But you don't receive his testimony. You hear, but you don't hear. You refuse to believe. You want to actually stay living You want to stay living in that that, that pride that we talked about earlier and that jealousy and that self-conceit because you want to think it's about you and not about Jesus. But John says that the one who who, who believes the testimony, what? He he sets his seal to it. He testifies or attests to to the truth of what he believes in. That's in a sense what we're doing when we believe. We're, we're testifying to the truth. In a way, we saw it pictured up here today as we, we, we saw people take, take vows of membership, right? Testifying to the truth of who Jesus is. As John says in his first epistle, whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne 
concerning his son. Why must Jesus increase? Why must we decrease? Because he is the one who has come from above as the great witness. The gospel itself on display before the people. And he comes, verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit. Now he, that he there, we could put God there. So that, that's who it is. For he, God, gives the Spirit without measure. Who is this without measure? It's not to all of us. It's, it's to the Son. The Son receives the Spirit without measure. And what does this mean? Because he has the Spirit without measure, what does it mean? It means all of his words are God's words. He is alone among the prophets that every time he speaks, it is the word of God. Now you might say, well, of course, he's God. So of course all of his words are God's words, right? That's not John's point. That's to like miss the point here. John is talking about Jesus and his humanity. He's talking about the greatest man that has ever lived in this world. The one who must increase and we must decrease because he's from above, because he is, is the great witness, because he is the one who has the spirit without measure. And the father, we read in verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Last week, we, we learned of, uh, that the father so loved the world, Right? Here we learn of the unsurpassing love of the Father for the Son. And He gives to His Son what? All things. Do you know what all things include? All things. <laughs> all things given into His hand. As Paul says in Ephesians 1, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Who is this one of whom we must say he must increase and I must decrease? He is the one who has come from above as the great witness with the Spirit without measure, the one who is above all things, the great King Himself who has come down, the great King who has come to usher in the greatest victory this world has ever known through His death and resurrection. He must increase. We must decrease. The Apostle John leaves us, leaves us this morning basically with two options. He says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the, the wrath of God remains on him. He basically says there's two ways. 
And this two ways applies to every single person in this room, whether you want it to or not. There's the one way that's our way. It's a life of rebellion. A life where we rely on our own work. A life filled with pride and with jealousy. Thinking somehow I can accomplish it. Somehow I can do it. Somehow I can make myself good enough. And can we be honest? It fails every time, doesn't it? Maybe we have those moments of fleeting success and where it feels good for a moment and then we're right back where we started. So you can choose to live your life in rebellion and John tells us that if you do, the wrath of God remains on you. That's weighty, that's heavy. But there's another way. There is another way. What does he say? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever will rely on the work of the Son. That's why John the Baptist is able to delight so much in Jesus because he, he knows what Jesus has come to accomplish. He knows that Jesus has come to make this world right and that he is the only way, the only means of making it right. And we must rely on him. Rely on his work, receiving his forgiveness and submitting to him as the Lord of life. The one who rightfully should increase as we decrease John the Baptist said, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Can you begin to say those words this morning? And not just say them. We say a lot of things. But not just say them but believe them. And not just say them and and believe them, but to begin to, to live out of them as though it's really true that He really is supreme, that He really is rightfully in His place. That He rightfully reigns supreme in our life. Can you say this morning, He must increase And I must decrease. Can it become the joy of your heart? Can you find joy in that? Joy not in relying on yourself. Folks, we we search for joy all the time in ourselves, don't we? You're constantly doing it. Looking for joy in all sorts of places, be it work, kids, whatever. We're, We're constantly seeking for this joy in this world and every time it lets us down. John the Baptist says, he, he must increase. I must decrease. And in that, in Jesus, reigning supreme, he being above all, in that, our joy can be made complete. Do you believe it?
Oh, Father, we struggle so much. We're, we're so self-absorbed, so focused on ourselves, so focused on us being the center of every narrative, of the center of every story. Oh, would you, oh, fathers, dismantle that idol of self that reigns within us? And might our Savior Jesus Christ reign supreme? Would you help us to say, to believe and live out of those words that he must increase and that I must decrease? Oh, would you help us to believe them, to truly be true this morning? And would we, therefore, find our joy, find our joy not in the things of this world, but that we might find our joy in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this all in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen.